My guest today is Mike Gridley. Mike started his career as a software engineer before moving into marketing and eventually becoming a product manager, then a CEO. He's started nine businesses so far in San Antonio, where he lives. We discussed the time he started an actual dumpster fire, how he got started launching all those businesses, and the uncommon but highly effective approach he uses for starting those businesses. It's an approach I use for my own startup, but I didn't know the name of it until I met Mike. It's called effectuation. It needs a better name and better marketing. Hi, I'm your host, Clay Nichols. I've brought over a dozen healthcare technology software products to market. In this podcast, I'm following my curiosity and looking at the world through the lens of product development. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Michael. I've been following you for a little while on Twitter and enjoying your business posts, and I've been interested in business for a long time, so uh, I thought I'd have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming out today. Yeah, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Clay. And, and I, I noticed that we have a Lafayette in common. Um, oh, yeah. We went to Lafayette College. I went to school, went to college in Lafayette, Lafayette, Louisiana, which is, I think you're in San Antonio. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so San Antonio is where I live. I think that's probably about uh, maybe eight hours or six hours east of you in southwest Louisiana. That's great. It's now called the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, which my old debate coach called said, I don't know if he made this up because he was good at this kind of thing. He said, oh, now it's called Ooh La La. That's pretty awesome. That sounds like, yeah. Well, there was a and, funny Twitter thread yesterday where it was like a, a university up in Canada renamed themselves and uh, a bunch of guys were like, oh, they could have called themselves Hogwarts. It would have been amazing. <laughs> and they totally blew it. <laughs> I, I suspect I totally JK Rowling might've had a copyright infringement complaint, <laughs> but Hey, just actually that would have been even better because they wouldn't have had to change the name. They get all the notoriety without the actual effort. Yeah. Just try it. Pick anything. Yeah. Just try it. So, so um, I'm going to jump right in. So, well, tell us a little bit. So you've got a you've got a blog and a Twitter. So uh, let's share that with our audience here. Yeah, yeah. So I um, I blog on my personal website, girdley.com. That's my last name, G-I-R-D-L-E-Y.com. And then uh, Twitter is the same thing, at at girdley. Uh, it's my last name, G-I-R-D-L-E-Y. Cool. And, and I noticed you've got videos on there as well. So part of your so uh, written, but as well as videos. Yeah, really kind of, um, you know, for me, content creation does a couple things. One is it helps me think better, which I really appreciate. And two, it has the kind of byproduct of accelerating kind of all the stuff I do as a day job. So, um, you know, doing a lot of Twitter, um, personal blogging, you know, I think kind of YouTube is the next frontier um, for for us. And then I have a couple of podcasts also that I do all kind of around similar topics of business and how to live a good life and stuff like that. Yeah, I think YouTube has um, better discoverability. I don't know if you follow VisaCon on uh, on the Twitters, but uh, mm-hmm. he was commenting. And, and I, I think part of it is there's just one, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? One um, one platform, the, uh, what do you call it? when you One canonical platform. So there's one place to go for all those videos. Yeah. So uh, search, it's, so it's unfragmented, which means comments are coordinated or collected in one place, feedback, ratings, all that sort of stuff, which is really yeah. cool. Well, on those, on those platforms, you have YouTube and Twitter. The aperture for consumption is actually broader. 
Um, mm-hmm. Whereas like podcasts, most people listen to three to five podcasts if they're a podcast listener. So it's pretty difficult when somebody gets those established, if they're happy with them and they're happy with the cadence of them as well. And, you know, the hosts don't let them down. It's, it's difficult to break into that. And you mm-hmm. hope you can get to be one of those top five, but um, you know, whereas on a platform like Twitter, somebody can follow 5,000 people, 2,000 people. Uh, and same thing with YouTube, the algo will show you all kinds of stuff. So yeah, def- definitely feel the pain there on, on trying to grow a podcast. Yeah. So, um, so I love that your, one of your mistakes was literally um, a dumpster fire. You oh, actually yeah. set fire to a dumpster. So was that before or after you were CEO of the, uh, the Alamo fireworks? Oh, it's worse. I didn't actually set fire to the dumpster. I told somebody else who told me it was a bad idea. I told them to set fire to the dumpster. (laughs) So you delegated the dumpster fire. It's even dumber than you think. Yeah, no, I was in (laughs) charge. I was in charge then. Yeah, I was. I was the boss of the dumpster fire. Literally. In the military, we learned that you can delegate um, response. You can delegate authority, but not responsibility. So I guess we have to suffer through that one. I should have done any of those things. (laughs) Would have been better than what I did. So I'm curious. So it sounds like you've managed a whole bunch of companies and now you're kind of doing this thing where you'll like uh, invest and kind of grow the company to the CRM stage. I like that where yeah. uh, where the company grows until um, they need to contact our customer relations management software. And then you're like, oh, time for me to go. So I'm yeah. curious as to how you sort of got started with that and kind of what that history is. Yeah, well, evolution for sure just started working for other people. You know, it's a, a great way to, to learn a lot about life is to do what they ask you to do. So that was really the first phase of my career um, post-college. So did that for six, seven years, um, mostly in the Bay Area, working for tech companies, um, ended up starting in engineering and worked my way into marketing. Uh, and because I learned I was not as, uh, I was a much worse programmer than I was a people person and a strategist. So I wanted to be involved and kind of be in the room where it happens quickly. And I knew being a programmer wasn't going to be the way to do that. Um, so, you know, I t- life took a turn around 27, 28 year old, 28 years old. And uh, we moved back to San Antonio, my future wife and myself, and started really an entrepreneurial journey. Then uh, I went to go work in our family business. That's where I started the dumpster fire, got my first CEO job the old fashioned way. Uh, dad gave it to me. <laughs> And then since then started um, starting companies. And when I started started new businesses, I would initially work in those businesses and oftentimes as the founding CEO. And what I do today is exclusively work on businesses rather than in them. So I'm a board member, chairman, investor of them, incubator of the companies, um, and try not to have any CEO roles. So the past couple of years, I've started companies where I never really worked in them at all, but would be part of assembling the right team vision and mission and get them going. Mm-hmm. So, so that first, so what was the first business that you, you, you started yourself and then I guess worked in that one? Yeah. So, um, we started a training company. It's coding bootcamp company called code up. Um, that is still around about 50 odd employees. It's thriving really well in, in space in San Antonio and has locations in Dallas and Austin and Houston. Um, and so that is a um, accelerated learning program that basically takes people um, from not that employable skills to having programming skills and then gets them jobs. And uh, we do that over about four and a half months. Uh, and if they don't get a job after four and a half months or after searching after graduation, we give them back all their money. So oh, cool. it has a hundred percent tuition refund. So it's, it's, we experimented with a bunch of different stuff about how to 
to actually align student interests with the school's interests. And mm-hmm. the best way we could do it was to understand what matters is life change to people in an environment like that. And the best way to get them life change is to help them get a great job. And if we don't do those two things, we need to give them back their money. So we do give people back their money here and there uh, if we're unable to um, help them kind of reach their their goals. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you follow the Lambda School um, guy. I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Lambda School does the same thing. Now they do it. Uh, they do it all remote. Now is your is the is your code uh, code camp? Is it all in person? Yeah. So we're in person. Okay. The other thing we do very differently is, um, you know, a lot of these schools um, and most of them have failed. Um, are do the ISA model, the income share mm-hmm. agreement model. Yep, that's what um, he does. Yeah, we hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can dig into that if you want to. But uh, the problem with ISAs is at first they look like they really align the interest of the student mm-hmm. with the school. But the problem is twofold. One is it's very high risk for the student because a school doing ISA is very motivated to only help very capable students. So mm-hmm. they have huge dropout rates, whereas mm-hmm. we'll have very high completion rates. So the second problem is it's increasingly difficult for the student because those ISA-based programs have a habit of going out of business. Most of them Mm -hmm. that have adopted ISAs um, have gone out of business over the past five years, which Mm -hmm. sucks if you're a student and it's the middle of your kind of your program. So what we do is a bit different. We need to get your tuition ahead of time um, so we can pay for great teachers, great placement, great all that stuff. Um, We just give you back your money if we don't do our job, which we think is much more much more pure and also sustainable and lower risk for the students. Okay. So you're, 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 um, I, okay. I was, I was trying to wrap my head around. It. I see. So, so since you are equally interested in every student getting a job as opposed to how much money they're going to get, um, then, it, you know, uh, the, in fact, you probably, it, so the idea would kind of get, get everybody up to the same level. And, and if you're looking at life change, if that's the vision, I can see where simply getting them a programming job and cause, and from there, either if they are extraordinary, even if their first job is not a 150 K job, their second job might be 150. Not that, not that that's the only metric for success. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm blanking on the guy's name, the guy from Lambda school, he's really interesting, but he, he had tweeted back a long time ago that, uh, that it is really hard to, and they do a good job, but it is really hard to compete with in-person. You know, if you think about it, the way the schools work, you know, the idea is that the system is set up, I mean, I'm thinking K through 12 or even college, the system is set up to, to get the student's butt into the chair, right? Yeah. Um, which is really the hard part. You know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, stuff around like habit formation. And one of them is if you're trying to go to the gym, start with promising yourself, you'll put your shoes on every day, or you'll drive to the gym every day. You don't have to go in, but you have to go to the gym. And it turns out that activation energy is the big challenge. It's not actually doing the thing. It's getting started. So that's fantastic. Well, kudos to you guys. So how did you, how did you start with big plans in mind with that? Or was it an experiment? What was the vision at the beginning? 
Yeah. So the um, the model of entrepreneurship I, I practice is um, slightly different than a lot of people. We it, It's commonly called effectuation. So um, I actually wrote a Twitter thread on it uh, last I week. I love that thread. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, which it's funny. A lot of the lean startup people are like, you got lean all wrong. I was like, I don't know, dude. I've read all your books. I know it's, how they work. It's not lean. That's okay. <laughs> um and, uh, and then there's the waterfall model. So, you know, we really built this business um, in that in that framework, right? I knew that um, myself, I have a background writing computer books, like I have a penchant for marketing and we had some capital to start the business with. And we had a, an environment in San Antonio where there were lots of employers wanting to hire programmers. Um, and then we got inspired by seeing a uh, competing boot camp, which is actually like the third or fourth one in the US pop up in Seattle. They've gone out of business since then. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't, but they did. Um, and I was like, man, you know, we should totally do this. I remember sitting there reading it on, on the internet one night. I, I told my wife, I was like, hey, somebody should do this in San Antonio. What are you doing? You should do this. And she said, I'm not doing that. And I said, well, I'm going to do it. So I texted um, one of my co-founders who was one of the first instructors. And I said, hey, let's do this. And, um, and it was off to the races from there. So I can walk you through the rest of the story, but yeah, we brought that to life. That's, that's very, very cool. Yeah. I loved your post on effectuation. Why don't you give us the a quick rundown of effectuation is, or maybe how it differs from an, a pure MVP, minimal viable product approach and spoiler yeah. alert. It turns out I did the same thing unintentionally when I founded my company, but I'll talk about that in a minute. So yeah. effectuation. Yeah, super cool. Well, so two two big things about it. So I'll tell you kind of the funny part about it, and then the uh, and then give you the lens of how to think about it. So effectuation is hilarious because it's like the worst marketed startup methodology. Like it's done by these professors out of UVA. Like it's got a stupid name to some extent. Like it's it's kind of funny. Whereas like lean startup, like everybody's heard of that because like the people behind it have been like really good promoters, right? right. Same with the classic kind of uh, VC model. So, you know, as I look at the business uh, creation methodologies out there, there's, I think there's three big ones and they all kind of emanate from different places. So, you know, if you think about your building a vision, you a business, you have a vision, you have your resources and you have what the customers want, right? Those are kind of the three different buckets that you think about, right? What you can build, where you want to end up and what people might want to buy. Mm -hmm. So each of these startup methodologies, our business kind of creation methodologies start with a different ver different place of one of those three. So like classic VC model starts with a big vision. We're going to build the next Uber, right? That's your vision. And then you waterfall iterate to get there. That's the waterfall right. model. Then you have the second one, which is does the opposite of that, which is lean startup. And lean startup says, let's start with developing what customers want and build to that kind of need based on mm -hmm. what their pain is totally viable. Okay. There's problems with each of those approaches. Waterfall VC stuff. What's the problem with that? Well, it's kind of risky. If a thousand people try to build the next Uber, odds are maybe one of you will build it. Like that's kind of risky. So right. if you don't want to live that life, you have a problem. Then you have the second challenge, which is uh, the lean startup challenge, which are the lean, you know, the lean startup kind of problem, which is the Henry Ford quote, right? If, uh, if I really cared what customers thought, they would have told me they wanted faster buggies, right? And right. meanwhile, he wanted to build horse. cars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, faster horse. So, so that's the problem with lean. You end up with these kind of meh, small ideas a lot of times. The lean startup okay. people will tell you that's not true, but I've seen it over and over again. Like how many, right. good, how many, good, lean, how many good lean startups have you seen take over the world? So, so maybe, this, maybe they're a little too incremental. Is that what you're saying? They're absolutely. not aiming high enough. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you end up with this small ideas a lot of time. So right. there's a third approach is, 
which is you start to think about the world from the lens of what capabilities you have and what mm -hmm. opportunities you kind of see right in front of you. And then you go and take those and then you start building as quickly as possible. And the idea being that um, you want to build stuff as quickly as possible and start to get it out there because experiments like that are the fastest way for you to get feedback. Mm -hmm. So if you yeah. build something and you try to sell it and somebody says, that's stupid, I don't want that, then you can ask them like, well, what matters here to you? Which right. is pretty powerful. So that is how effectuation works. Just the lens of where you start is what do I have in front of me that I can do? Um, what do I hypothesize people want? And how do I start running experiments to get something out there as quickly as possible in front of people? Well, and that's, I don't know if you know that ironically, this is a Texas story, uh, the story of Speak and Spell from Texas Instruments, because yeah. um, Texas Instruments approach was, we don't really know. And this is an, this is an interesting problem with the lean startup, because I like the lean startup approach. Um, I think you can maybe build something more world changing. And I think that when they say a faster horse, you say, okay, great. You know, the point there is, you want to get from A to B. What's what's the outcome behind the feature? Sure. But what 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 is missing is that sometimes they don't know they want it, or they don't know it. So they don't know how much they want it until they use it. And so right. TI had these grants back in the eighties, and they would give them. I think it was like fifty grand. It was really small, and it was enough to build a prototype. So some engineer mm -hmm. said, "Hey, I got this idea. Speak and spell. You guys can look it up." It, it was basically this really old technology in like the 80s where I think you could like type in a word and it would, mm -hmm. it would speak it. So yeah, it was, I have like one. Yeah. <laughs> and, one. Uh, and so, and everybody thought it was a horrible idea. They were like, ah, oh, this will never work. They said, this guy got one of the grants, 50 grand, yeah. and uh, and he built it. Um, and it became this huge hit. I don't know how many millions of dollars. I'm sure they got a good ROI on that. And, and my company started like that. It was, it was, and that's why I was curious as to how your company started because I was just, I was just improving my programming skills. I didn't go to a coding boot camp. Um, yeah. um, maybe, maybe it was a good thing in this case. And I thought, <laughs> well, I'll, I might as well write a useful program, right? And so I wrote a program, and you know, I found a real world problem. Um, and and it is our least successful program, but we still sell an element of that program twenty five years later. That's great. Um, and. And I just looked at, okay, what, what's a field that I know something about speech pathology. My wife then was a, a speech pathologist um, and it's kind of education oriented and I enjoy that and it's software, you know, so we'll go ahead and do that. And so, yeah, I think the missing ingredient, you know, it's kind of like, I guess I would give a food analogy. It's like, if you're trying to make a new dish to serve, right? You can easily say, wow, we're gonna set up for mass production so that we can make it really inexpensively. That's kind of the VC approach, right? Yeah, the waterfall uh, model. Yeah, the, yeah the, the waterfall model for sure. And then the lean, which is the, you know, uh, Joel Spolsky called it, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, like the naked chef versus McDonald's or something like that. Sure. Was how he explained it. Yeah. And so, so that's one way to go about it. And then the, the, the lean startup would say, well, just make the simplest recipe that, that people are telling you they might be interested in your approach or, or the, the effectuation is like, well, what do you have in your kitchen? Yeah. Right. Let's start with there because that's, just, that's our zero cost. It's also the thing we probably know, know the best. There was a great show on uh, PBS years ago called uh, uh, it was like some kind of cooking show, but there was a segment in it um, called stump the chef. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you remember that. And, and, and they would, somebody would call in, they have, they'd have these guest chefs and somebody would call in, and uh, and they'd say, all right, tell me what's in your fridge. And they tell them what's in their fridge. And the chef would have to pick 
uh, work with those ingredients and he could have, I think, three magical ingredients. And it was always salt. I mean, to salt and butter were always what the guy picked. And uh, and like somebody called in and they're like, I have peaches, chicken breasts and marshmallows. And the guy's Oof. like, OK, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to poach the, the peaches and the butter and then we're going to. Um, we're uh, what was it? Uh, chicken. Yeah, we're going to poach the poach the chicken, poach the peach, put it on the chicken. OK, not too bad so far. And then we're going to roast the marshmallow and put it on top. And, and they were like, OK, you had us until you got to the marshmallow. But anyway, the, the, the idea, though, is is look at what you what resources you have currently. Now, the lean startup is probably really popular with younger people who maybe have no resources yet. They're like fresh out of college. That's totally. why all the young kids are making social media apps, because it's what they know. Yeah. Um, and but there can only be so many of this. So that's that that was really, really interesting. So that's still a going concern, right? Yeah, it's going great. Um, you know, there's a professional CEO team, 50 people. I don't even know how many students we have in parallel right now. Um, there's about 10 classrooms of folks doing doing life changing um, and just went all back in person right about now. I think by the time wow. this episode comes out, everybody should be back in person, um, which is super powerful. Um, you know, we went online during the pandemic and that was just uh, uh, online stuff just doesn't work. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. just, yeah. well, it's just, it's, it can work, but it's temporary. It's just the motivation hard. is, is much, much lower. If you can get somebody in a, in a room physically, I don't think that even the teacher has to be local, but I think all the students, you know, if you kind of, uh, I used to work in Ednets um, back when I was consulting for film yeah. companies and I had drawn this graph of uh, effectiveness versus interactivity. And there's an inflection point Um when the uh, I guess the inflection point is is down and it's when the students are, not in my opinion, when the students aren't in the room, you can take the teacher out of the room. You can take put the teacher across the country. You can put them online. You yeah. can even maybe make them recorded with some kind of interactivity. But as soon as the students are not in the room with each other, you lose something, something magical there. Mm. Um, so have you guys, you know, the, the university I went to had been around long enough that they had really generated a reputation in the IT telecom community so that they would come back and they would. And so what happened is they produced pretty good students. Uh, and of course, those hardworking Southern boys, you know, uh, that grit you talked about, um, they would then come back five, 10 years later. And like, I want to hire people from this program. Um, have you guys had that kind of flywheel effect? Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's one of the moats around the business. You start mm -hmm. to get this, um, the situation where, you know, there's, for example, some fortune 500 companies and even some smaller companies that in their job postings now say, you know, you either need a four-year computer science degree or code up, you know, wow. certificate to, to do this. So, you know, that's part of the, the rationale there. And really, you know, we're, we're different to some extent in terms of the lenses we use to think about the business where we don't see ourselves as somebody that is in the business of giving you a certificate. Like we, for, for a first few years, we didn't even give people certificates until they're like, well, my mom wants me to get a certificate. And I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. What matters is you get a job. Yeah. Um, so we do give people diplomas now, but mostly because it makes the party more fun at the end. Yeah. Um, but the, the business that we're actually in is in getting people to that next step of that employment, that job, that's the measurable yeah. for us. Um, whereas like a conventional education place sees themselves in the job of giving you a certificate that you can carry around yeah. for the rest of your life. We, well, it's, it's what's legible. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at some, um, some PM training, um, 
And somebody said, oh, here's, you know, here's a place. And he just sent me the link for the certificate. And uh, I said, well, I want training so good that nobody's interested in the certificate. Right. right? right. Uh, and what happens is they hollow everything out besides the certificate. Pretty soon, all you're left with is a certificate. Not universally true, but, um, but can happen. So, so of all the businesses that you've had, which one was, was, the, most, was the most interesting or surprising? Um, I think they're all really interesting. I mean, um, you know, some have outperformed, you know, we started a software company in 2018. It's up to like 350 odd people now. Wow. Global, well, I guess you can company. pull from the school. Uh, yeah, there's some work there. Um, this has also been a business that grew. It's called Duro Software, grew through acquisitions. So um, we seeded that with our own money uh, in 2018 and then brought on some external capital and have continued to buy companies. So that business has acquired mm -hmm. 10, 10 companies. It turns out it's pretty, wow. it's pretty quick to grow. Uh, when you're adding people, you know, 20, 25 people through acquisitions each quarter. Right. So that's been really positive. Um, you know, I worked last fall on a, on a new deal where we created a very large, um, backup and disaster recovery business here in San Antonio called mm -hmm. jungle disc. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's about 120 people, um, kind of mid eight figures in revenue. So very, very solid, big business. Um, you know, those have gotten to be more fun. Um, mm -hmm. the longer I get in my career. Oh, I think I've do... heard of jungle disc actually. That okay. sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah, I was we thinking have... sand disc would have been a good name in West Texas. Oh yeah. Probably already <laughs> that taken. <would> be cool. <laughs> yeah. We have a, we operate under like five or six different brands. So we combined a local company with a company about five times its size. Um, mm -hmm. That was a carve out of, um, of stuff out of a big public company called J2. So, you know, that was just a great, great opportunity to learn. So um, yeah, they've been all fun. I think as I'm getting older, working on bigger deals is much more mm -hmm. rewarding. It's more mm -hmm. fun. Cool. Let's see. Now I'm curious, you said that, uh, that your, your Halloween costume rental business um, you thought, you know, you're like, oh, you know, then, then Amazon came along, mm -hmm. uh, and it sounded like you felt like that should have been foreseeable. And I'm curious if you really feel, you know, being honest, was it, I mean, everything's, you know, obvious in hindsight, do you think yeah. there would have been any way to have predicted that ahead of time? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of it's for sure, you know, bad luck. You don't know how things are going to shake out. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I was an Amazon customer at that time. I could have seen it. There were online, uh, you know, there were online people um, selling costumes and stuff like that. Um, you know, I do think there were surprises when we built that business. Um, you know, immediately when you're doing a seasonal retailer like that, we would, you know, we would go in and open up a store for six to eight weeks and right. sell a few hundred grand worth of costumes and stuff like that. And it, you know, the first few seasons, it was a good business. You know, as you start to look at what your gross margins and net margins are, you know, it does become apparent that there is a no man's land in that kind of market. You either get big enough to buy directly from mm. China uh, and bypass the middlemen in the US, or you stay small enough that you can be efficient to overcome kind of those cost problems that you're going to have. And we got to a point where we had about 12 locations um, at our peak. And, you know, it's a nice little business, but ultimately, like we had the worst of both worlds. We weren't big enough to buy directly from China. So we would go talk to these chumps in New York that had the licenses because everybody wanted to be Spider-Man uh -huh. um, and you had to buy through them and you had to pay whatever price they said they wanted to charge you. That's basically the way it worked. Uh -huh. um, and if you're small enough, like you can make it up through optimizations, but at a certain size, you either have to get big enough to do it or get small enough 
to be efficient. And um, then Amazon just came in and squashed everything. So it made, so, made our decision pretty easy. So those kind of businesses, every time I see them, them and the fireworks business, I'm really curious because they're so seasonal. I mean, obviously it sounds, what do you do? What do all the employees do for the whatever nine months of the year that the business isn't running? Yeah. Well, I mean, for us, when we were in both businesses, you would kind of switch in August um, after the 4th of July and start to focus on Halloween. Right. Um, but like there's, um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that has to be done to run a business. So our, our fireworks company that we still have, you know, has dozens of people working there full time year round in a real mm -hmm. office with W2 jobs and everything. And they're busy year round. They're finding new locations. They're making sure we have product. Uh, they're oh, really? doing merchandising, marketing strategy, um, taking vacations, accounting, reconciliation, you know, the audits. I was getting texts from them about trying to figure out some stuff that I'm in 2014 for an audit. You know, there's just all kinds of stuff that is continually going on there. And then you're getting ready for the next big selling season. So in our case, um, we're seasonal in Texas. You sell for only two weeks preceding each holiday, New Year's and 4th of July. Oh, really? So. So they haven't really done meaningful revenue since January the 1st at 6 p.m. or so. Um, and they'll start <laughs> you know the exact time. <laughs> yeah, they'll start selling. They'll start selling again June 24th. Um, so two months from now. So it is a hugely capital intensive, very lumpy cash flow business that is dependent upon weather. So it's really hard. It makes everything oh, yeah, else seem God, really that easy. Two weeks, that two weeks, the weather was bad. Oh my God. I can only imagine. Yeah. It's, it's well in telecom, the big challenge is the burstiness of traffic, right? Yeah. Cause you got to, you know, you kind of imagine how that works. So you said, you know, I was, I was looking on your blog and you said that you'd spent years in an, uh, an uncreative CEO position and it took you a while to sort of, um, what did you say? Develop the courage to do what you were put on earth to do. Yeah. Um, so what was that? And, and, and I asked this for a selfish reason, because I'm, I'm I find myself kind of in this position as well. I've run my company for 25 years. I'm looking at being a product manager at, at, at other company. I've done some consulting. Um, I'm curious as to what that journey was like to sort of, I don't know, I guess, rediscover your creativity or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, there's a there's a really good book um, called The Courage to be Disliked. Have you read that book? No. It's like a Japanese book. Uh, oh, it's that's pretty interesting. fun. Um but he uses kind of, you know, he uses this lens to kind of think about, um, you know, there's you ideas and me ideas. So to put that in perspective, me ideas are ideas I have for the life I want to live. And you ideas are the ideas I have for the life you should live, right? And so that mm -hmm. those come from your parents, from society, from your friends, from your spouses, siblings, everybody. And, um, you know, that, that presents a, a challenge for you as an individual. Like, do you want to live a life where... Uh, you do what they want you to do. So you keep them happy. So you listen to you ideas and you live somebody else's idea of your life. Um, or do you want to decide for yourself and potentially anger those people or disappoint them if you don't live the life that they want you to live? So, um, you know, for me, like I'm not, uh, I'm not somebody that rushes towards conflict. Like I'm a harmonious type person. I, I optimize for that and spend a lot of effort to try to keep everybody happy. You know, and I think that requires you over time to, and it, it helps to get older, start to just get comfort in saying, this is the life I'm going to live for me. And you just start to have the courage to do that. Um, you know, I think there's pluses and minuses to living a life that way for me, like that it's slow for me to kind of have that courage. But, you know, it just took a while for me to really think deeply about who I was and then just have the courage to go pursue what I knew in my heart was the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe 
you know, what that thing was for you. Uh, in or terms if you of, can. yeah, if you had to describe it, you know, like what I do today or, yeah, or, or, or what, if, I guess if you were telling yourself back then, Hey, this is what you were meant to do sort of big picture, 10,000 foot. What, what is that? Oh yeah. I mean, look, I, I know the types of tasks and, you know, purpose kind of spaces where I work best, right? Like I like, I like being part of solving unique new and creative problems. Um, I don't like optimization problems. Um, you know, I like situations where you get to interact with other people and, and deal with psychology and motivations and incentives and get everybody aligned and harmonious. Like all those things are, are really fun for me. I like to think big galaxy brain thoughts. Um, I don't really want to do, you know, the same thing repeat repeatedly. Um, you know, and I think, with life, it's tough because you, as you get older, you need time to kind of understand and see, well, okay, that just happened. Or I just had to do that. Am I happy or sad? Like, how did that make me feel? And over time you start to see those patterns and, you know, as a 25 year old or even a 35 year old, I don't think I could have articulated like that type of stuff of what I'm like, what I dislike, what I'm good mm -hmm. at, what I'm bad at. Um, so I don't know if it's really possible for me to go back and talk to that, that person 20 years ago. I don't know if he would have understood it. Um, just because he just doesn't have the data points that I do at this point, but to encapsulate kind of what I like to do and who I am and where I thrive, like those are kind of the, the two, the two big categories I would tell you. There's a really good book by um, like on the guy's name, but it's called stumbling on, uh, on happiness. Oh, sure. um, and, and, and it's funny. Uh, I, I got to the end of the book before I realized, Oh, the title is stumbling on happiness, not stumbling on to happiness. <laughs> It's a subtle distinction, but yeah, if you've read the book, the premise of the book is it is really hard to, yeah. to know what's going to make you happy. So it's really about stumbling on happiness. And that's one of his, his points is he said, it's, it's really difficult to predict whether you're going to enjoy potato chips tomorrow. You're, yeah. you're much better off talking to somebody who's like you, who's having potato chips today and asking them if they like their potato chips. So the second best thing is scattergun approach throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall and see which one makes you happy so that's that's really cool um you talked about you know alignment of people and and one thing that's been kind of on my mind so i'm going to throw it out there and see if you have any thoughts is the place for coaching in the business world yeah. and any thoughts on that yeah lots of thoughts on it i mean i think it, one thing that has really frustrates me about american culture is like actually getting feedback um is is tough right like there's so few ways that you're able to actually get feedback um you know and it's a situation where like i find myself having to ask for feedback and advice so much whereas a part of me really wishes like america was more comfortable just being direct on stuff and and telling folks those things and and unfortunately it's only getting worse like you have some experiments like bridgewater and ray dalio's company and stuff where people are much more direct and transparent but like most people by and large they just sit there and take it or they won't tell you um because they're so worried they're gonna hurt your feelings or offend you or whatever so that's kind or of get my sued or, or get sued yeah like that's kind of my number one kind of overarching sadness about america and i know there's goods and bads to that so you know i think i think coaching is really hard um 
you know, for me, it's a, it's a learned skill at this point point. something I'm really working on developing. Like my business coach himself was always like, Hey, you need to work on business coaching. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And, you know, it's one of those things that to some extent is a real, you know, black box for me. Like there's black boxes where you just look at it and you're like, I think that's a black box. And I don't really understand what's in there. And I don't even really understand where the black box is. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where I kind of, kind of see coaching that way, but I think I'm getting better at it just through practice and, and work on the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, I think you as a boss, um, it actually ends up being a very big retention tool to keep people around. If you're comfortable first building that shared trust that coaching requires and spending the time to really see your people as, and your teammates as humans. And then once you do that, I think you're in a good place where then you have the ability to say, okay, well, you know, I've given you eight compliments or I, I understand you as a person and really where you're coming from. And all that data together gives me enough to really sit down with you and then encapsulate the way, encapsulate the feedback in a way that's going to be best received and most productive for the other side. And mm-hmm. depending on how the other person's wired, you know, they may just want it direct or they may want the shit sandwich that, you know, there's all kinds of different, uh, that there's all kinds of different ways, but you, you can go that path, um, with these individual people. And I don't know how your coach works, but I've worked with a couple of people, um, one professional coach and one's just sort of a, a friend and mentor. Yeah. And what was a revelation to me is to work with a coach who basically says, what do you want to improve, right? What's yeah. your vision? And that's always the guiding. In fact, I, I take it back. I've had three coaches. The first coach I had, I was a productivity coach and my coach. So we had a head productivity coach. Um, and this is for something called building a second brain. And my coach one time told me, he said, uh, he said, I will never criticize you. Um, and, and my wife at the time laughed at that. She was like, ah, you know, that should have been a red flag, right? The idea that somebody would say they'll never criticize you. And what his point was is he's, he, is he always approached it as what is your vision? What are you trying to improve? And then he would go from there. So for example, he might have seen, hey, uh, Clay, you're talking too much. But he didn't address that because I said, well, what I'm trying to do is this other thing, right? But by doing that, by letting me take the lead, then I'm the one always saying, I think I did this wrong. Can you help me do better with this? So yeah. there was never any need to give me any a shit sandwich, as you said, because he never had to criticize me. It was always me saying, and by the way, the first time you, I don't know if you, you work with your coach like this, the, and I had another coach where I did the same thing. And that was about conversation and, and, and talking too much and listening, not enough. And when I would bring him uh, a, a thing like, well, I had this conversation and I did this wrong and he would just listen, right? Because once you bring a couple of problems to a coach and you realize they're not going to say, gotcha, you did it wrong. They're going to say, oh, okay, well, what do you think you should do? And they're very much, you know, my analogy for this is plate spinning, right? If you were doing it for a team, if you got all those poles, you know, with plates on them, and the goal is to assume, you know, the the plate has, the plate wants to spin and you're there to deftly spin it just as much as it needs. So if you assume that the person you're coaching wants to do a good job and that they're going to come to you with, with what they want to improve. If you provide space for that, what happens is they're going to be so thrilled with the little bits of improvement to begin with, but that really accelerates. It's that 1% improvement thing. Pretty soon you're bringing them bigger and bigger problems. It's kind of like if you went to your subordinates and you said, hey, I'm really bad at yelling at you guys. I'm going to try to stop doing that. 
Right. And then the next day you yell at them. And before you can catch yourself, they go, you said you were going to stop yelling, Michael. And there you go again. You're yelling. Right. Instead of saying, instead of waiting and saying, you know, let's see if Mike self-corrects. Let's wait for Mike to lead uh, for this. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I once you've had a boss like that. Oh, my gosh. The, the And then the beauty is now the trick is the coach has to be willing to let the, the coach he fail. And it's also tough. If you're like, I'm your boss and I really do need you to be talking less when you're selling um, and it's a problem, can you really wait for them to realize, oh, I need to fix this thing? I, I don't know. How, any thoughts on how do you square that circle? Yeah, no, I, I dig it. I mean, I think what you're kind of alluding to is, um, you know, no matter where the other person is on the other side, as, as the coachee, you know, there has to be that kind of fundamental level of trust that you develop over time with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like you're, you're talking about that. You're talking about a situation where your team needs to feel, you know, feel safe and have trust to be able to call you out. Right. Or to be able to give you, you know, to tell you the real deal. Like, I think, I think that's universal. You know, I, I do think that listening to you talk like you and I, I think we're both Gen X. Um, the way we want to hear stuff is very different than the way people of other ages want to hear stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's actually very interesting. It's something I've been working on a lot recently. Like, how do I approach a boomer um, mm-hmm. differently than a millennial, for example, um, versus, you know, somebody of a Gen X kind of generation? Like, these are all kind of different generational lenses that people are bringing different, different things that they want to hear. Um, or different ways that they need to be spoken to to be most effective. So anyway, that's the second kind of thing I would add to what you're saying. Yeah, there's, uh, I don't know if it was you that posted this, but somebody posted um, doing 360 interviews where they would get someone, a third party, and they could do that. And they were having a coach do it, but it occurred to me you could have a, a psychologist or somebody do it. It just has to yeah. be somebody that understands trust. And what they would do is they would get anonymous, they would, they would get feedback from the folks you work with and then anonymize it. And, and probably um, uh, smooth it, was, it out it was, a little bit. It was me, by the way. Oh, was you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we're just going in circles here. I thought yeah, it was yeah, a really a ver- good idea because um, my other question is, and this is, this is a, 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 again, another selfish question because I've worked in my own company for so long. I haven't worked with a bunch of other coworkers like other product managers to be able to compare myself and see mm-hmm. what I do well and what I don't do well. So, cause you'd, you'd commented, Hey, find it what your strengths are, find a position that, that sort of fits with that really well. So I'm curious and I see you use strength finder. Uh, and I tried that. I haven't done like the, the paid version, just the version from the book. Okay. I'm curious. It's, so, it's all right. Okay. Cause I, cause it seems so I'm, it, 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 it didn't illuminate anything for me. I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm a creative problem solver. I already knew that. Um, am I a good creative problem solver? That's the question. So, yeah. so any thoughts on how one does that? And, and again, the 360 uh, assessment comes to mind, but even that, I don't have a lot of that because I don't work with a lot of peers. I work with subordinates. How does one figure out what their strengths are? Because I'll tell you, the thing that, um, that you're best at is often that you think the thing that you don't realize you're good at because it's yeah. so natural for you. You're like, well, doesn't everybody do this? And yeah. it's like, no, everybody doesn't do that. Yeah, it's a really good insight. Yeah, I mean, it's just when people ask, like, how do you figure out like what your inherent superpowers are? It's like, well, what 
what comes really easy to you and what do you really enjoy? And usually that Venn diagram of things, people like the things that they're really good at, mm -hmm. right? And that, that come easy to them and they perform really well. And what are the things that you dislike doing? So yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start. And then after that, I think really going through and being self-reflective and mindful of how you feel after you're doing things mm. is really where you, you're really where you can validate those or not, right? There are things that I am good at that take energy from me and don't make me as happy as doing other stuff. So, you know, so it's not necessarily a mutually exclusive thing that just because you're something's easy, you're, you're going to really thrive doing it or, or enjoy doing it. So yeah, that was, that'd be kind of the one thing I would point people at. And the second thing, personality assessments are great. Like I use them, but you know, strengths finder, most of them are not very good. I use one that I like a lot that I find more, much more actionable and sticky. Um, but again, like just using one is kind of the, which one is it? Uh, I use one called culture index. Yeah. I wrote okay. a thread on, on yep. that as being one of the tools I use culture index and predictive index is another one. That's good. They're both basically the same ones. Um, they have real science behind them, which I think is good. Um, and are, are pretty good there, but you know, with those personality assessments, like you start to realize like 60, 70% of the benefit is just people actually slowing down because they're using an assessment like that and understanding everybody's coming from a different place and they're wired differently. And that by itself is like 60, 70% of the battle. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who has an expression. Um, um, don't run past that, which he's always saying. He's, he's like, wait a minute. Don't run past that. You just said, you know, it's funny because I, I, I used to, I, I joked that Oprah Winfrey is a conversational highlighter. Yeah. And what she's good at is she'll have a conversation and somebody will say something. She'll be like, wait a minute. You just said this thing. Well, in fact, she was talking about um, the psychologist that had worked with some some girls that she got an education for in South Africa. And he wrote a book. He ended up writing a book called hmm. um, Don't Ask What's Wrong With Them. Ask What Happened to Them. And he hmm. said that, and she's like, wait a minute, you said this thing. Um, so yeah, I, I love that idea of just, you know, pacing is always is, an, I think an underappreciated thing. And I was just tweeting about this. Um, and, and I learned it in sales that you can, uh, and, it's, and it's a lot of things, you can either have the pacing be too slow, right? We wanna, we wanna, we wanna get this customer jazzed up, more excited, um, build more anticipation, but you can also get too excited. Right. The customer's like, all right, I'm ready to sign now. It's like, well, hang on. Let's not talk price. They're, they're like, tell me the price right now. I want to buy it. And it's like, wait a minute. You haven't heard all the benefits yet. Or the salesman, and this used to happen to me all the time, gets too, too uh, excited. We start making mistakes. Uh, my oh, yeah. boss used to call it being on the ether which ironically would put you to sleep, but you know, but I, I still get, I still get his point. And it would happen to me. I'd just get all jazzed up and I, and I just start making mistakes because you start rushing mm. your like, and the mm -hmm. thing is, ironically, it's probably because you're going to get the sale, but yeah. you need to slow down. Otherwise the, the sales team is going to be very irritated with you when the paperwork isn't all done the next day. And the customer has driven off in the car. This was selling cars uh, a while oh, yeah. back. So yeah, that's uh, that was, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> Um, all the stuff that they were hinting that I should maybe be doing or sort of let me figure out, I didn't understand. I don't, I don't always read between the lines well. And then I took the, uh, we did all this training. One of the training was, uh, was uh, like ethics. And then in there, they told us all the stuff we shouldn't be doing. I'm like, oh, if I were doing all this stuff, they would be a lot happier with me. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so I'm like, awesome. if I'd done the training sooner, I would have known a whole lot better.
Um, let's see if I've got any other questions here. We actually uh, moved along really quickly. That was great. Oh, nice. Um, let's see. Uh, so one other thought, one other thing I, I, that you commented on is that intelligence, you said, isn't fungible. In other words, isn't transferable necessarily from one thing to another. But also one of the, one of the things that's an indicator of job success or job performance is general, general mental ability. So I'm curious about sort of is there uh, an aspect of intelligence that is relatively universal and applicable and useful across lots of jobs? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you define kind of the, there's the spectrum of pure knowledge worker, right, the Peter Drucker thing, all the way down to manual labor, obviously, certain types of intelligence are, are more valuable kind of at that knowledge worker end of the spectrum. So, you know, speaking specifically about knowledge workers, you know, I think that, you know, general mental aptitude is, is a real thing. I know we don't want to um, feel a lot of times like some people have higher mental horsepower than others, but I think that's the reality of, of the stuff. And then that mental horsepower translates also, you know, and comes through a lens of how people are wired, right? And how they're able to take that mental horsepower and deploy it into things. And then that combines with grit and you kind of get this, this three circle thing about what, what can work and what can't for, for people. So, you know, some of those are transferable um, and some of those are not, but by and large, you know, I think that, you know, your intelligence um, will translate across different things, but your geniuses may not, right? So if you're very good at, you know, having a strong memory, for example, which I don't, um, and a memory for details, you know, that's not going to translate well. That's going to help you be a success in accounting or programming versus mm -hmm. kind of maybe in another role where the, the, the um, intelligence that comes through in a strongly wired memory is, is going to be a good thing or not necessarily even a, a necessary thing. So that's kind of how I think about it. You know, people are complex and some mm -hmm. of it translates and some of it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I'm stealing a question from another interviewer. I can't remember who it was, but if uh, maybe it was uh, Tim Tim Ferriss, if you could put any billboard up, um, raise prices. Up <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, raise well, prices. now now you're just following Patrick McKenzie, my buddy Patrick. Uh, I've known Patrick for about 20 years now. Yeah. Um, I, I think he may have been saying raise prices all. Oh, if it's Patrick McKenzie. Okay, right. Simply. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean i think we're you know so okay i'll take it here race prices is mark andreessen but um oh you know, really think, he stole it from mark andreessen okay yeah I think or maybe vice versa yeah i don't know this the same question got asked to mark um you know i think right simply is a, a number two i would put there um i see people especially very smart people or or people who are you know should be com better communicators um, I see them writing in obfuscated, difficult to read manners and thinking it's a feature and not a bug. Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge life mistake, you know, and, it, you know, you've got guys like Tlaib, um, Nick, Nicholas Nassim Tlaib, like uh -huh. has some really smart ideas. No reason he should be writing in that obfuscated of a manner, like yeah. other than I think he's just very angry, but. You know, I think you've got. <laughs> I've heard yeah. that from other people. I don't, well, I'm I don't blocked know. on Twitter, but I'm sorry. I don't, I don't really care. Um, but um, yeah, he's got the books that should have been a blog post. I mean, that's kind of a classic deal. But um, anyway, I, you know, I think it's a situation where um, I'm somebody that wants to approach life being kind to everybody um, yeah. and writing in a way that's very difficult for your reader to internalize or comprehend. Uh, it's a disservice to them. 
Um, and I know there are people who think it's a feature. I think that's a, I think that's the wrong way to live. It's not, it's well, not consistent with my core values. Yeah. I, I think there are a lot of complicated, I agree with you, first of all, uh, and it's something I'm trying to work on. I think it's, you know, I used to joke that Twitter was the muffin tops of, uh, of social media. And I meant the Seinfeld episode when, when Elaine said muffin tops are the best part of the, the, the muffin, let's throw away the rest of it. Uh, Twitter is just the subject of the email, which often doesn't get used very well. Uh, I, and then I realized people may think I mean the other muffin top, which is a derogatory <laughs> reference to uh, a part of the the belly. Um, yeah. I, I won't go into details of it. So I hope I didn't get in trouble the first time I was using that. But uh, I think that there are complex reasons, psychological reasons why, why people obfuscate. Um, one is defensive writing. Another is uh, academic writing. Um, there's a really good um, book called, uh, it might be called On Writing. Um, uh, oh, no, it's um, Right to the Point. Um, and it is, uh, um, anyway, uh, there's a great story in there about, a, about an astronomer who wrote a book called The Cuckoo's Egg about his hunt for a West German spy. Uh, and the cuckoo's egg refers to the way that the, the West German spy was hacking into mainframes back then. But he wrote his first edition of the book and nobody would buy it. So he went to the store and bookstore like a good astronomy student. And he said, I'm going to learn how to write. And he bought a book called Right to the Point. Yeah. Um, and he rewrote the rewrote the book and it became a bestseller. It's an amazing story. True story. Yeah. He ended up writing the foreword to the next edition of Right to the Point, which I thought was just uh, that's great, um, just incredibly fitting. But I, I think some people um, sometimes don't want to be understood. Um, I think there's a, a subconscious, and I know I've done this before, where right. maybe you're not quite confident in the thing that you're saying, so you're going to write defensively, and you're also going to maybe hide it a little bit not come out it's kind of like making a weak it's a way to weaken the claim instead of just coming out and saying raise prices you'd kind of hedge around and go well in these specific circumstances blah 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 blah. you know it's funny uh there's a program called like rightly or something and it's a it helps you write oh it, i know what it was it was a it, there's a game out there like like boggle or whatever all these little games right. and it's and it's and and it's a little mini game and it's to just shorten sentences and I thought, what a clever idea for for a, a little a little game like yeah. like Wordle. But the example they gave was eliminate words and eliminate unnecessary words and sentences. And they they uh, they eliminate they deleted everything but eliminate words and sentences. And somebody posted and and struck through sentences and said, where else would the words occur? Yeah. So even their example yeah, was uh, was too long. So you're bumped. So you're you're. Uh, your uh, uh, your billboard would be raise prices, or write. Yeah, I'll take raise prices simply. number one. Write simply would be number two. If I can't okay. have raise prices, I'll take it. You, if you want to write in complex, obfuscated manner that makes you know your academic writing my problem, that's fine. Just raise your prices along the way. We'll be in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> if I have to pick one, I want you to raise prices. Well, and it's well, it's you know raising prices. That's a very nuanced like deep thing to say because actually it reflects how many people have difficulty charging a fair price for the value they're delivering to other people and you know i go through that all the time with companies they just see well like there's these two customers that'll be mad or this you know 
this it's this easy for us to make it do we really deserve to increase the prices by five percent well yeah you do like it's this is not just this is not just about making the giving everything to the customer we need to have balance value being captured by everybody so yeah i i i, I would pick that'd be my my number one and number two if i could have well and i have, and i way. think that um two thoughts on that one is that i think and i know i've done this people behind hide behind a lower price right yeah they're like oh they're gonna they're complaining about not enough features well we've got them we've got this low price and the other thing is so 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 raising your price is sometimes a challenge to your own people of hey we're going to charge more for this we need to deliver on on mm -hmm. what we're which is yeah. a good problem to have and the other one is that um oh shoot now it's escaping me <laughs> um there's another one from patrick i think Oh, if if uh, if somebody's not complaining about the price, then the price isn't high enough. Some yeah, you sure. should have some people complaining, otherwise uh, uh, um, the the prices aren't high enough. So yeah. I, I I agree. And ironically, if everybody raised that, and this will be interesting with inflation, if everybody in the country raised their prices ten percent and paid their employees ten percent more, the only difference would be we would pay a lower percentage of every big screen TV to China. Because yeah. now the thousand dollar TV would be eleven hundred dollars, but everybody would make ten percent more. China would just make ten percent less. Yeah, it's, which is it's, not a bad thing. Yeah, and it's a really interesting. I see people complain about the trade deficit. Like, trade deficits to some extent are a reflection of an extremely healthy, high velocity economy of money moving through this economy and value mm -hmm. being transferred and created very quickly. Um, and so if you're able to take the low velocity things and put them into other markets and build them there, you have two things happen. Like one is it, it allows you to accelerate your internal economy. And the second thing is it helps you bring up that other economy to become a customer yeah. of yours. It's just, you know, so it's as somebody who is a, a lay study of economics and macroeconomics and how they work, it's pretty funny to hear people talk about stuff like that. So I, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you have a head around it. Yeah, my, my my only concern with with um, outsourcing this of uh, stuff overseas is, or the only concern I can see is, if you create a situation where their workers are treated much more poorly than your workers are, because then um, now now maybe their workers are now being treated better than they were before, but let's pretend for a moment that they're still being treated poorly. And what's happened is somebody said, well they're willing to take more advantage of their workers, right? They don't have environmental protections. Or what, I'm not saying this happens, but I'm saying where it does, now you've created a situation where you are arbitraging health, right? If I'm using that word right, where you're yeah. basically setting yourself up to say, well, now to compete in the future, we're going to have to lower our workers' standard of, of, of health to be able to compete with them, unless we plan yeah. on never bringing that back. Now, if you can outsource something there, and their workers are not treated as well as your workers, but their workers are treated better than they were the day before, and you don't ever plan on bringing that back on shore, then maybe it's not a bad, you know, it, it's not a bad trade-off. And what I hear is when stuff comes back on shore to the U.S., what happens is it gets roboticized. Um, so we, we take it back, but now we're, now we're fully automating it. So like we send call center jobs to India, and they come back as 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 uh, as AI enhanced um, or 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 web based instead of phone based. So I don't know. I've never met a rich macroeconomist, so I'm a little dubious about whether there's predictive power in macroeconomics. Not to not to knock the economists, um, 
but uh, maybe there's a better way to measure. Soros I don't. I can't think of a better good. way to measure the value of an economist than whether they make money. Seems Soros reasonable. did pretty good. <laughs> but because of his, yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Well, anything else you'd like to add to this, Mike? No, no, this is great. Thanks for thanks for chatting with me. Well, thanks for being on. It was uh, it was great to finally meet you. Uh, and you can find uh, Mike. Give me your Twitter handle and everything. He's got uh, great stuff on Twitter. Yeah, at Girdley on Twitter. Uh, I have a newsletter on there that I'm trying to get up and going. I've, I haven't sent out anything in two months, so it's maybe the best newsletter ever. And then, uh, <laughs> so check out those two things. And um, yeah, happy to uh, happy to connect with folks on the social media. Cool. Well, thanks for coming out today. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Where and if you her? could uh, send me um, the video from that, and I'm going to play around with seeing if I can.